It brings us really to a first matter as we open up this letter um, of Paul's to the Colossians. I've mentioned a few times things that I've just been grateful for. Paul tells us often, doesn't he, in his letters, to rejoice and to give thanks in all circumstances. Have you noticed that with Paul's writings? He commands us to rejoice and tells us to be thankful quite often. Uh, But he doesn't just instruct us, he's a really good teacher, he practices what he preaches. Um, In fact, in almost all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he begins with a word of thanksgiving. There's only about two that he doesn't. There's some homework for you. See if you can find out which letters of Paul's he doesn't give thanks, first and foremost. Um, So before we even open up to Colossians this morning, I want to ask you, what is it you're thankful for? Have you ever stopped and thought about it? I want you to take a moment right now. I'm going to give you a few seconds. What would you give thanks to God for this morning? It's actually something we should practice every day, giving thanks to God. When Paul begins his letters with a word of thanksgiving, he tells those he's writing to what it is he gives thanks to God for with regards to them. He's heard about them, he knows them, he's visited them, and he tells them what he thanks God for in regards to their life, their faith, the grace they've been given, the partnership they share in the gospel with him. Now, I know Paul's never attended Corrie Baptist. He didn't establish this church, uh, but just for a bit of background for Colossians, he didn't establish the church in Colossae either. Um, he actually had never visited the church in Colossae, and here he is writing to them. It was probably a fellow called Epaphras, who we've heard about in this reading, we hear about again in chapter 4. Um, he, he first proclaimed the gospel to these Colossians. He probably heard it from Paul, maybe in Ephesus, and he's gone back, he's received the gospel with joy, and he's gone back to his hometown and he shared it with the people there. And now he's back with Paul, sharing with him what's taking place. So imagine for a moment someone like Epaphras, say Bob or Kathy, has gone to Paul and told him, given him a report of things that are happening here at Corrie, of who we are and what God's been doing among us. How do you think Paul would begin a letter to us here at Corrie? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Coro. Grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, dot, dot, dot. What is it Paul would hear about us from the one who gives a report? What is it he would give thanks to God for with regards to us here? I found that to be a really interesting exercise to go through, to consider. I don't think we need to be bashful about it, nor do we need to be proud. We just need to be honest, consider ourselves with sober judgment. There's plenty, I'm sure, that Paul would warn us of. He would want to instruct us and teach us and maybe correct us on some things, make sure we're travelling in the right direction. We're far from the perfect church. But I would hope we could at least come up with a few things that Paul would give thanks to God for as well. I hope there's something. Let me tell you some of the things I'm grateful for. 
I'm grateful for the faith God has given this church family and the generations of faith that are reflected in who we are here and the intergenerational culture that we share and strive to sustain, a gift from God, young and old. I'm grateful for the love and the fellowship we enjoy and the unity, especially the gift of unity we have amongst our leadership. Not every church can enjoy that. I'm thankful to God for the strong foundation and focus we have on his word and the gospel of Christ and his grace and the fact, the recognition we have, recognising that we depend on God for everything and especially upon his grace to us in Christ for our righteousness and salvation. Now, I'm sure there's many more things you could think of. We could go on for a long time. But it's good to stop and consider those things and to actually give thanks to God for them. Because they're not of our making, are they? Not mine, not John's, not Nat's. We've got good tradition, good history, but every day is a gift from God and every gift we have is a gift of his grace to us as a congregation here, as part of his family here at Coro. Gifts that we are to receive with thanksgiving and to enjoy and use for the building up of the body and for God's glory. We're going to look at a moment just what it is Paul gives thanks to God for with regards to the Colossians. But before we do, hot on the heels, most times that Paul gives thanks to God, he then prays for that same church. The very next thing Paul does, as we see here in Colossians, after expressing thanks to God for his recipients, is to pray for them. He asks God to grant to the church something he sees good and fit, maybe something that's lacking, something they need, or something to encourage them in or to grow them in. Let me ask you again, what might Paul pray for us here at Coro? I pray, as we have over the past couple of years actually, since we did a series in Ephesians, that we might grow in our knowledge and love of God. And that we might grow in such a way that it bears fruit, that it permeates in all of our life and influences, affects all that we do. Not just on a Sunday morning, but every day of our life. So much so that it bubbles out of us in our conversations and we share with others who come to Christ, new believers in Christ. Not just to have bums on seats, but to have life in Christ renewed for others and for us here at Coral. I'd love you to join me in those prayers as a congregation. And I'm sure you would add your own to that, to those as well. But for now, let's see what it is that Paul prays and gives thanks for with regards to the Colossian church. We've already heard, we had read first in verse 1 that Timothy is actually with Paul as he wrote this letter. Uh, Timothy was probably more Paul's scribe or what we call his amanuensis rather than his co-writer. Um, Paul's probably dictating. Timothy's got a little bit of license with what he writes, but it's mainly Paul who's giving the content here. Um, as I said, though, Paul hasn't yet visited this church. He didn't establish it. Uh, Epaphras, a Jewish fellow called Epaphras, probably heard Paul in Ephesus and brought the gospel uh, to Colossae. And at the time of writing, Epaphras is with Paul in Rome. Remember when we finished Acts, Paul was left in Rome in chains or at least under house arrest but free to speak the gospel and have people come and go? Well, Epaphras is one of those who is coming and going while Paul's in Rome and he's writing. It's about 62 AD, same time he wrote Ephesians. 
and Philemon. And Epaphras has come and shared with him something of the life and faith of the church in Colossae. And he writes to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now that's Paul's usual greeting. I finish off a lot of my texts and emails with cheers and blessings. But it's more than just a little throwaway line, isn't it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Here's a church, a bunch of believers who know the Lord and Paul knows they need to go on in and depending upon God's grace and they need peace from God in their life and faith. And at the very mention of God our Father and his grace, Paul tells them what it is he gives thanks to God his Father for when it comes to these Colossian believers. Verses 3 to 8 contain Paul's prayer of thanksgiving as well as some other information concerning how Paul's come to hear of their situation uh, from Epaphras. And then verses 9 to 14 contains his prayer or petition, what he asks God for on their behalf. But what we read in verse 4 is that Paul gives thanks to God for two things in particular. He gives thanks to God for their faith in Christ Jesus and for their love for all the saints. From verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. If it's not that he's thankful for their faith and love, he's gives thanks to them for the faith and love that he's heard of in this congregation. Very simple, yet hugely substantial. Paul doesn't take anyone's faith or love for granted. That in itself is a gift to us from God. So Paul gives thanks for it. And going on into the first part of verse 5, we learn that the grounds for their faith and love is the hope laid up for them in heaven doesn't always work in that direction doesn't it this is Paul's often repeated trilogy faith hope and love but it doesn't always work in the same direction as it does here elsewhere in 1 Timothy for example the aim or goal of what Paul tells Timothy is love that's the goal and that issues from from a sincere faith but here I think it's clear and you can look in the text it's the hope laid up for them in heaven which spurs these believers on in their faith and their love. The NIV captures it pretty well, putting it this way. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the people, all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. What do you think about when you hear something springs from? Tim's not here today. Tim's not here. I sometimes think of Tim. Tim works at Bounce. He likes bouncing on the trampoline. Who likes bouncing on the trampoline? Some bit. Nathan does. That's good. Almost go straight through the middle, wouldn't you? (laughs) Too sharp. (laughs) The faith and love of these Colossians is like bouncing on a trampoline and the hope actually springs them forth in faith and love. Or maybe you think of a, a fountain. That sort of spring, a wellspring of water. And it's from that spring that faith and love flow out from the Colossians. 
The hope stored up for us in heaven is what energises our faith and love, putting a spring in our step, a bounce in our step as we walk in faith. Or the hope laid up for us in heaven rains down and waters the faith and love we exercise here on earth, giving it the energy we need. All of it God's grace, his gift to us. God uses a carrot, not a stick, to spur us on in faith and love. The carrot of hope. Driving us on in faith and life. The hope set before us keeps us going in life, filling us and fueling us in faith and love. Now, Colossians was written almost 2,000 years ago. And there's so much, though, that we can learn from this letter. There's much we face in our day, in our culture, (laughs) that's similar to what the Colossians were facing in theirs. 2,000 years ago, I realise it's older, it's different. But the, the saints here, they were facing pressure from two particular areas. They were facing pressure for some um, erroneous Jewish teaching, some false teaching of the gospel with regards to the law. And like them, back, but like us here today, same there, not every church or synagogue could be trusted to preach the true word of God. But there was also pressure from the outside, from the world, from the pagan culture and context around them where there was polytheism, worship of many gods, they worshipped angels, there was idolatry and immorality was rife as well. Now you wouldn't think that's 2,000 years ago today, would you? So the content of those challenges and pressures might be different today, but very similar arenas where we face troubles and trials and challenges. But also very similar answers in Christ. It's the hope laid up for these believers in heaven which keeps them firm in their faith and strong in their love for all the saints. It's the hope laid up for them in heaven that keeps them looking to and trusting in Christ when others are falling away or mixing their lives and their faith with the other voices of the world, other gospels or other gods. What is this hope laid up for them in heaven? It's actually Christ himself. We hear about that a couple of times through this letter. Christ is the object and content of their faith. Paul has heard of their faith, not just in Jesus, but in Christ Jesus. The fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. We're going to hear next week all of what that entails. The supremacy of Christ, his preeminence, his fullness, the fullness of God dwelling in him. But if we can glean for a moment from a different letter, from the letter to the Hebrews, remembering that faith is being sure of what we hope for, then we can say that these Colossian believers are sure, they are confident that Christ has secured them in covenant love to all that the Father has promised, this hope laid up for them in heaven. Because, as we'll hear next week, Christ himself is their supreme Lord, And they're all sufficient saviour. It's all in him. And all the promise of Christ, they are absolutely sure of. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Because it's grounded in Christ's death and resurrection. And the promise of God who is faithful to his word. 
this hope laid up for them in heaven is not just some wishful thinking, oh, I wonder what's up there in the clouds with all the angels. That's not the hope that we're talking about here. We just sang an amazing grace, a verse that we don't often sing when we sing that hymn. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. John mentioned a passage from Romans 5. This hope does not disappoint us. This is a sure hope. This is a sure thing. It's guaranteed. What does it include? Well, it's expounded further on in the letter, but it includes eternal life, being presented holy and blameless before the Lord in glory, communion with God, the end of suffering, no more tears, no more pain, full redemption, the inheritance of those who were given the full rights of, so- of sons. <clears throat> it amounts to the fullness of Christ that we receive. It's the promise of all of that. It's that hope that spurs the Colossian believers on in faith and love. And Paul gives thanks to God for their faith and love, which are living and active because of that hope laid up for them in heaven. What is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that spurs us on in faith each day? What is it that keeps us on in love when we're weary? And exhausted. Is this what gets you up? The hope laid up for you in heaven? What we have to look forward to? What we know is there for us? Kept, guarded, secured for us? We are a very present people, aren't we? In today's world. That is, we live in the moment for the moment. And that's good to do. We should make the best use of the time now. We like to be thinking of what's happening now. Maybe we like to think of what's coming next, but two or three steps away, well, let alone five years, ten years, twenty years, glory. How far are our horizons in our faith? Do we ever look to the hope laid up for us in heaven to keep us going, to get us up and keep us going today? If we don't, and I dare say there's many in the world and in the church who don't, maybe that's why there's so many of us struggling with anxiety and depression. Maybe we don't have much to look forward to. Maybe we don't know what it is we have to look forward to. Maybe we don't really know or appreciate what is laid up for us there and waiting for us in Christ. Let me give you just a a hint, just a glimpse When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's just a taste of the hope that's laid up for us in heaven. That's just a taste of what gets these Colossians up in the morning and out of which springs their faith and their love. I often share with young couples preparing to be married that if we don't know about the great marriage banquet of the bride and the lamb, the lamb and his bride, if we don't have our hope fixed on that, then we're going to need to put everything we've got into our own wedding day, aren't we? Because that's as good as it gets. That's as glorious as it will ever get. But if we have a hope laid up for us which is even better than that, then if things don't quite go as we want them perfectly on that day, it's in a different context, isn't it? It's a whole different perspective. 
we have a hope laid up for us somewhere else than just what we can manage and engineer here. Maybe some of us have lost any sense of hope altogether in our life. Maybe we've been struggling for so long, we're drained of all hope. In fact, we're scared to hope that things might get any better. Over the past month, our family has learned some new terms and phrases, one of them being courage fatigue. You heard of that? Courage fatigue. Too weary to be brave and face another day. On the brink of despair and not sure if you've got any energy to actually have any hope that it might get better. To have any hope. It's a very real issue and it's deep. One that often arises in cases of chronic pain and brain injury. Maybe we've been too disappointed too many times to dare hope any longer. One of my daughters told me it's worth seeing the new Spider-Man movie, uh, No Way Home. So I dragged the other daughter along. Um, And Spider-Man in that movie has a girlfriend called MJ. Who's seen the Spider-Man movie? Come on, own up a few. You'll know who I'm talking about. She's not a very naturally positive person. She admits she's more a glass half empty kind of girl. Maybe because of too many disappointments in the past. And so she lives by this motto. If you expect disappointment, then you won't be disappointed. Expect disappointment and you won't be disappointed. I reckon that's a pretty sad way to live. Now, I know we can feel like it at times. Don't want to put too many hopes up. Don't want to get too keen because I'm just going to be let down. And as believers in Christ, we too can feel let down and disappointed and so deflated that we don't have the strength or courage to hold out hope any longer. Especially if you've endured suffering for a long time. Courage, fatigue is not just something unbelievers experience. Some of us have been praying for a good friend and retired pastor, struggling with cancer and the treatment he's receiving and all that entails. And whilst he knows the Father, proclaims Christ, holding firm in his faith, one of the first things he said to me when he first heard of his cancer, he said, I'm no superhero. I'm a wuss, really. He knows it's going to be a long, hard battle. And whilst he trusts in God, he doesn't want to suffer. He's battling with the pain and the debilitation of it all and the side effects of the treatment. And he and his wife have asked that we would pray against the despair that creeps in, that he's feeling. Despair that the pain will never leave him. Courage fatigue? Probably. Faithlessness? I don't think so. No, I think just a real man in faith, struggling in pain and wrestling with life and God and faith, crying out to God for help. Sometimes all that faith can do is pray, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Desperate not to succumb to the despair that envelops us. Desperate not to end up living by the motto, if you don't expect anything, you won't be disappointed. Because that is no way to live. It's no way to love others. 
nor is it any way to die. It's one thing to go into marriage. I also share with young couples that you you shouldn't go in with too many expectations, too many illusions on what life's going to be, placing unreal expectations. That's not just just for marriage, that's for life, work, church. But unlike Spider-Man, the latest movie's called No Way Home, we do have a way home. We know the way home. Jesus is the way to the Father, the way home, the truth and the life. It's not Peter Parker... He's the guy in the Spider-Man suit. It's Jesus Christ. Unlike MJ and her reluctance to expect anything, to have any hope that anything's ever going to work out good, the hope we have in Christ, as we've heard, does not disappoint. Because God's already done something in the past to secure our hope in the future. It's laid up for us in heaven and nothing can touch it. It will not perish or fade. Unlike MJ's hero and saviour, Spider-Man, he's got to put on a suit to be special, super. Our lives are hid with Christ in God, always. And so when he who is our life appears, we know that we will appear with him in glory. That's the hope laid up for us in heaven. And when your faith and your love are waning and you're weary of believing and loving, it's the hope laid up for us that actually our faith and love are to spring from. We can be filled with hope and that hope can then fuel us in our life of faith and love. Even when we lie on our deathbed. God has chosen to make known to us, the Gentiles, the riches of the glory of this mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I hope that's how it is for you. I pray it's true for you, not just in theory or in your mind, but actually in our hearts and in our experience in our daily walk with Christ. You see, God gives us new mercies to walk in every morning and he prepares good works for us to walk in. But the driving force behind the life of these Colossian believers, the fuel for their faith and love, is the hope laid up for them in heaven. Christ himself, all he's prepared and all that the Father has promised us in him and is now keeping for us in heaven. Now, I realise I've spent a long time on that first section. We're only going to look briefly at the next one. And you'll realise we've already touched on it a little bit anyway. Paul gives thanks to God for these things regarding the Colossians because he's heard them from Epaphras. He's heard how they heard the gospel of God's grace to them and that it's bearing fruit and increasing among them, as it is in the whole world. Such an encouraging thing to hear. Paul's there in Rome and he's realising the gospel's still going out and it's bearing fruit and increasing along, among the whole world. But Paul's also a realist. As wonderful and rich and full of joy as it is to know the gospel's going out and the faith and love of these Colossian believers which spring from the hope laid up for them, Paul knows they still need lots of prayer. 
just as we do. They still need wisdom and knowledge. They still need to grow in their knowledge of God, to walk in a manner pleasing to God. Having faith and hope and love doesn't mean life's going to be just a walk in the park. We know that. Paul knows that. You don't have to be a Christian for very long to learn that, to have your hope or your faith or your love rocked a little bit or maybe even eroded away by the winds and waves of life. The Colossian believers need prayer, just as every one of us, every believer and family of believers need prayer. What is it Paul prays for? We need the power of God to sustain us in life and in faith and hope and love. We need patience and endurance to run the race and to walk the walk and to endure the trials and temptations. And we need the joy of salvation, renewed and restored often in the midst of the battle. That's what Paul goes on to pray for these believers. We ask God, not ceasing to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'll get back to that term in a minute, knowledge of his will. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now when Paul prays, and we pray, that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, we're not talking about or praying for divine insight as to which house to buy or which girl to marry or which job to apply for. Again, It's not that God's not interested in those things. He is, and we can and should pray for them. But God has revealed his will to us. In his word, by his spirit, he's told us wherever we live, whatever house we buy, we're to love our neighbours as ourselves. Whoever we marry, and he's given some guidelines for that, we're to be faithful in marriage. Wherever we work or study, whatever we do, we're to do everything to his glory that's god's will for you and i sometimes wonder if we spend too much time and energy pondering contemplating and wrestling with fearing really that we might make a wrong decision is this god's will or i really don't want to make when actually i think god would be far more pleased if we just made a decision in faith trusting him and being faithful as we make those decisions I'm not being trivial. I'm not saying we shouldn't be discerning in the big decisions we make. But I wonder if we need to make more of God's faithfulness to us as we trust him in our decision making. If you want to know God's will, open up your Bible. It's a great passage in 1 Thessalonians. Give thanks, pray continually, rejoice. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know God's will? Pray, rejoice give thanks being filled with the knowledge of God's will it can sound a bit airy fairy to us but it's about as practical as walking when you get up and you walk out of here that's as practical as God's will is for you because Paul prays that we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord just our daily life living that faithfully in God's grace, with thankful hearts, is God's will for us. And we'll bear fruit. 
because that's his desire in us. As we abide in him and he abides in us. And perhaps in our own prayers, as we make more of God's faithfulness to us and increase in our knowledge of God, as Paul prays here, then our prayers won't end with, Lord, show me the way, which decision to make, which direction to choose. We might pray those things still, but they might actually go on and say, help us to know the way forward so that we might bear fruit, so that we might walk in a way which is pleasing to God, not just comfortable for us, but pleasing to God. And we give glory to him. I find it really wonderful as Paul prays that we need to be strengthened with all power, with, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy. Sort of feels like it's getting harder and harder and harder, and then he throws in this, with joy. It's not easy to keep on going through the battle sometimes, is it? Unless there's some joy along the way. If there's no joy, it can be a real, real struggle. And so we can pray with Paul. We need to pray that through the battles, not just that life would get easy, the battles would end, but actually that God would give us some joy to help us endure and have patience along the way as we wait for that hope laid up for us in heaven. And as we do, don't forget, Paul bookends his prayer really here. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There's that hope laid up for us in heaven again. Friends, God's delivered us. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, where his, he's purchased us with the blood of his Son, and we receive the forgiveness of sins. It's another whole sermon or sermon series just in those two verses, isn't there? We've got so much to be thankful for. So much to look forward to. So much to spur us on in life and faith and love. And we're going to hear more about it as we go through this book, this letter to the Colossians. Can I encourage you? Read ahead. It takes you about 20 minutes to read through Colossians in one sitting at the most. It's four chapters. Read it slowly. Take it in chunk-sized bits as well. Digest it, chew over it, meditate it, as Psalm 1 teaches us to do. But for now, let's pray. Father God, you have rescued us, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. You've forgiven us all our sins, and you've made us your own, adopting us into your own family, into the kingdom of of your beloved Son. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us in your Son, for the faith you have granted us, the love you have shown us, and the hope that you have given us and laid up for us in heaven. Fill us, we pray, with a knowledge of your will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Help us to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling and pleasing to you, that we might bear fruit in every good work. Father, sometimes we just want to get through a day 
But Paul teaches us here to pray that it would be better than that, that we would bear fruit in what we do. Keep us, we pray, sustain us through every trial and temptation and challenge. Grant to us the strength and endurance and patience we need. But grant to us joy as well, Father. Fill us with joy. Command us to joy. Particularly as we open up this letter to the Colossians, as we see the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.